0: Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Um, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. That's not the text I'm going to be preaching from this morning. It's a great text. It's worthy of a lot of preaching, but uh, it's not going to be where we're going to be this morning. So, if you want to, if you've got your phone or your Bible and you want to go to Ruth chapter two, that's where we're going to be this morning. And you might be wondering why Ruth two on Easter. Well, no real reason. Ruth one we started last week, so we're doing Ruth two this week but there is a resurrection theme that runs throughout Ruth chapter 2 which i hope to show you uh momentarily. You know this is a great a great day. It's a it's a day in which we remember and celebrate just as we do every sunday but especially on easter sunday uh, the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and the resurrection of jesus christ is a historical fact. It is a historical fact. It's not made up. It's not. And it's something that we have to reckon with. In our lives. Because one day. Every one of us. Everyone in this room. And everyone who has ever lived. Will stand before a risen God man. Named Jesus Christ. And give an account of their life. The resurrection. N.T. Wright says. Completes. The beginning of God's kingdom. It's the decisive event that demonstrates that God's kingdom has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. And the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and you're now invited to belong to it. End quote. So the resurrection then is not just a historical story. It's our story. It's a story that we can join into that just as Jesus passed out of death into life so by faith and in union with him we too pass out of death into life. As Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 24, Truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes who in him who sent me has eternal life he is does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So this morning, we are going to see that in Ruth chapter 2. We are going to see the story of a woman named Ruth and another woman named Naomi, who on the, on the event of encountering a redeemer, they pass literally begin out of death and begin to walk in newness of life. Let me begin this sermon on a down note. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 5 and 8 say, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. All things are full of weariness. One writer summarized what the writer said there in the following way, quote, One is prepared in the end to be defeated and broken up by life. Quote. I wonder if you've arrived there. Have you arrived at the point where you've been defeated and broken up by life? Because that's really what it takes to encounter resurrection. you got to die first to be raised again. Paul Miller writes, We are trapped in the daily grind that cycles through dragging ourselves out of bed in the morning, going to work, watching the clock until quitting time, rushing home to the loneliness of an empty house or to the whining of children, eating dinner, watching television, and then collapsing back in bed again only to repeat the cycle. It's not long before you work up a pretty good depression, end quote. But here's where Easter Sunday breaks in with indomitable hope in the midst of that modern experience for all of us. In a life that seems so futile And meaningless resurrection is in the air. History is moving toward a great climax, brothers and sisters, friends, toward the invasion of God that it will change everything. Our God is actively working in history, bringing life where there is death. And that's what we see in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Our God is actively at work in history, bringing life where there is death. And because God has come to help us in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the cycle of meaninglessness and futility and depression, the inevitability of being defeated and broken up by life has been dealt a death blow. And that no longer needs to be the story in which we operate because resurrection is in the air. Resurrection means that God takes death and brings life out of it, both spiritually, as we saw in the baptisms this morning, by raising us to newness of life by faith in Jesus. And physically one day, when on the last day, those who are united to Christ will rise both body and soul and reign with him forever. And so in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, we're going to witness a resurrection of short, of sorts. God is going to begin bringing life out of death. And we'll see this in three steps this morning. First of all, let me set the scene for you before we dive in and walk through it. We're going to see three different scenes take place in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. And I'll review Ruth 1 for those of you who di- weren't with us last week so you can get caught up on the story. We're going to see that Ruth begins to move out. She's in Jerusalem. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's moved back. She's moved to Jerusalem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she is now going to request to go out and glean in the field. She's poor. She's destitute. They're looking for food. And she's going to move out and glean into the fields. In second scene, she's going to encounter a man who extends great kindness to her by the name of Boaz. And then three She's going to come back to Naomi. Ruth is going to come back to Naomi after the day of gleaning in Boaz's field, and she's going to celebrate and respond with great joy. So that's the story of Ruth chapter 2, and that's where we begin to see death, a life come out of death for Ruth and Naomi. So here's the first point. Three steps involved in spiritual resurrection. First, desperation. Desperation. Like I said in the intro to the sermon, you can't live until you died. Until you experience being broken up by life, you can't experience newness of life in Jesus. Until your sin has ravaged you and, like our brother Chris said, take, took you farther than you ever intended to go and cost you more than you were willing to pay and kept you longer than you're willing to stay, until you've experienced that, you have no need to cry out in desperation to God. So if you ever hit rock bottom, the story starts in Ruth chapter 1 with a relentless downward motion into despair. We saw it last week. It's the time of the judges for the people of Israel. It's the worst time to live in the history of Israel. There's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And worse, there's a famine in the land as a result of God's judgment on the people. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, leads his family out of Israel into an adjacent country called Moab, seeking food and refreshment there. But all they encounter is death. Elimelech dies and leaves Naomi. Naomi has two sons who marry two Moabite daughters, Ruth and Orpah. Both the sons die and Naomi is left with Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law. She encourages them to go back to Moab. She's destitute. She's hopeless. She's going to try to return to Jerusalem based upon news that there has been a return of food and uh, the famine has, has gone. And so she encourages the daughters to go back to Moab. That's where they're from. Orpah takes her up on the offer. Ruth doesn't. Ruth clings to Naomi. And not just to Naomi, but experiences a conversion herself as she clings to Naomi's God and to Naomi's people. So they return together, Naomi and Ruth, to Jerusalem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi is broken. Ruth is hopeful. And that's where we leave off in the first chapter of Ruth, a scene of absolute desperation. And so we pick up the story this week where Ruth and Naomi are in this condition. They are despairing. They are broken. They are needy. They are impoverished. But they are looking out for hope. And so Ruth is now in Bethlehem and she's on the lowest rank of the social ladder. I want you to put yourself in Ruth's position here. Ruth is on the lowest level of the social ladder. She's a female foreigner. She has no father. She has no husband, no brother, no son to protect her. And without a male protector in those days, Ruth is sexually vulnerable Without money, she's financially destitute. Without a friend, besides Naomi, who's not really a friend at this point, sort of a friend. She's lonely. Without her country, she's open to prejudice. She is one incredibly gutsy lady. And here's what we read, beginning with Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, there's a flash of hope through the story. Because here's a man that's in their family who can rescue them. Because in those days, if your husband was dead or you didn't have any sons, you looked out to your family to see if there was another man who might be able to step in and redeem the situation, take responsibility for care and protection and provision. Now, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi and Ruth don't know that yet. This is the writer inserting this right now at the beginning of the story. But this is not news yet to Ruth and Naomi. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So, verse 3, she set out. And went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered she's the young moabite woman who came back with naomi from the country of moab she said he said she said please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers so she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest she's getting at ruth is getting after it she is go, now this is i know this is a very foreign concept so we got to get into the world of Uh, of judge, a judge's day Israel here and understand what's she doing? Why is she going gleaning? What does that mean? What's that all about? Okay. So in the ancient Israel economic system, they, if you were to be righteous and you were to be godly, then you were called by God to leave a portion of your field for the poor. Usually the outsides of the field were for the, the poor to come and glean, that is to take barley and, and harvest from those areas so that they could eat and feed, and, and feed themselves. And so that's what Ruth's doing. She's going out as an impoverished female Moabite foreigner to go do what they do, which is look for food. And this is not like a welfare system. They gotta work for this. They like, they go and they work hard. She's slaving away in the sun. She's working all day. That's what Elimelech's man says to her when he comes and asks, when Elimelech, or sorry, Boaz, when he comes in and, and asks, what's going on? Who is this woman? What's going on? And, and he makes a comment about her character. So she's been here all day, verse 7. She's continued from early morning until now. This is obviously later in the day. And she hasn't stopped once except for a short rest. I mean, she's gleaning and gleaning and gleaning and working hard in the fields to try to gather some food for her family. She's desperate. That's where resurrection starts. Desperation. And desperation doesn't mean you just sit on your hands and say like, well, I guess I should give up. No point in living life now. I've hit rock bottom. Might as well give in. Is that Ruth's attitude? No, she said, it's time for resurrection. It's time for change. I'm gonna go out and trust God to provide. She steps out by faith into her newfound commitment and conversion to the God of Naomi, who is the true biblical God of the Bible. And she steps out and exercises faith in him. She's exercised faith in him ever since her conversion. The move to Jerusalem was a huge exercise of faith. She, she comes in and she goes out, a vulnerable woman, who likely in going to glean, if she found herself in the wrong field, May have been sexually assaulted. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. She was vulnerable. But yet she's going out and she's trusting God. And this is why, how do we know that she might have been taken advantage of? We'll see that later because of what Boaz says to his men. But she's desperate. And I want you to get a a beautiful portrait of rugged, hardworking, initiatory womanhood here. This is real womanhood, not the pretty dressed up, you know, womanhood that we typically get pictured in magazines and on the Internet is what a, a great woman is and which this is rugged. This is trusting. This is faithful. This is hardworking. This is determined. This is initiatory womanhood. This is true biblical womanhood. So sisters, be encouraged. This is what womanhood looks like. And for my friends here this morning who find yourself wondering whether you're a Christian, whether or not you've followed Jesus, are following Jesus and what it means to follow Him, we must understand as all of us do who are in Christ that spiritually by nature, by nature we are in far worse condition than Ruth. To God we are each Moabites. All of us. We are outcasts. We are idolaters. And we are unworthy of grace or favor. You know, maybe you're here this morning and it took a lot of courage for you to come to church. It was a step of faith. To step out and say, you know what? I've been burned by the church in the past. I've been hurt by people. Or maybe I just don't, I don't even know. I'll just go. And maybe you headed out into the field, so to speak, and you hope for the best. You're here this morning. You just headed out. And my prayer is that you would know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're not here by accident this morning. That the same God who has providentially guided Ruth and Naomi to this very moment, the same God that provided the the meeting, the chance meeting between Ruth and Boaz, as it says in verse 3, she happened to come to the part of the field. That's the narrator's idea of saying God was at work doing this. And God is at work in your life this morning bringing you here to sit among his people and hear the gospel. It's not an accident this morning that you're here. And if you're despairing and struggling and broken up by life, you are really here by God's appointment this morning. Because here you meet a person like you and you would, if you heard our stories, meet many people like you who have been broken up by life, destroyed by sin, left for refuse on the garbage pit by Satan. Whom Jesus picked up, cleaned up, resurrected, dusted off and made trophies of grace. And that's what we want for you this morning. What can appear to you like something that just so happened to take place this morning that you came to church. Behind your coming is a God who desires your resurrection. I pray that you would know that this morning and hear that. God is at work behind the scenes. Working in providential ways. And he's doing the same thing. You know, in a season of our church where we're facing transition... And we're facing a pastor with cancer and we're facing lots of change potentially and, and and all that that's coming on the scene. I want you to know that we have a God who is providentially committed to working behind the scenes for our good. He's not stopped working. He's not stopped working. So we need to see in the story of Ruth hope in a kind God whose providence continues to guide his people behind the scenes through difficult days. And the ordinary stuff of life. In, in a woman going to a field looking for food. So that's, this, that's, that's desperation. That's what we see first. Second, provision. When you're despairing and you're looking for an answer, God provides. And notice how he provides for Ruth here. Verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. (laughs) What a godly man Boaz is. And he's risking his own reputation doing stuff like this. He doesn't care about his reputation. He cares about this foreign Moabite woman on the edge of his field. Who is gleaning, who is impoverished. Boaz Boaz is evidently a godly man. You notice how he runs his business. He walks onto the field that day and say, the Lord be with you. And they all respond. The Lord be with you. This is a godly business owner. He leads his business in such a way that that godliness is cultivated and love is cultivated and other orientedness is cultivated and looking out for each other is cultivated. We have men in here. Who own businesses. Boaz is your model for how to bless people in the workplace, for how to love them. It doesn't mean you gotta walk in every Sunday morning or every Monday morning and say, the Lord be with you to your whole office. Probably not a good idea unless you've already built that culture over about a decade, but you can come in and start blessing people and start serving people and start loving people and start training your people to look out for something other than a paycheck. But as an opportunity to serve and bless and lead, we have many examples of that in our own body that we could point to. And I just pray, praise God for you all and pray that you men would excel still more in doing that as you lead in your places of business and work. But getting back to the story here, notice how he calls her his daughter. That's a a term of affection and love. And he tells her, you know, you're going to be like one of my young women that work here I'm going to treat you like one of them. Verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. That is the young women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? See, he's protecting her. He's providing for her. He's making sure that, yes, even within his own business, not everybody's a God follower. He hires good workers, not every one of them is a quote unquote Christian. But he protects Ruth from those men who might prey upon her. Middle of verse 9, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's giving absolute provision to Ruth. Verse 10, then she fell on his her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? No entitlement. You get to a point in your life where you're so despairing and you're so destroyed, you're not entitled to anything. You are humbled. And that's what it takes to achieve resurrection. You got to be humble. You can't be entitled. You can't be going to one thing or another and, and trying to find a reason why someone should love you. See, Jesus did this in his days. He would call people to come follow him. He would call them to stop justifying themselves. Stop relying on themselves. Stop glorifying yourself. But notice Notice Ruth's astonishment at the grace she is receiving. And here's an application for us. Ruth knows that she doesn't deserve God's love, favor, and acceptance. Do you believe you deserve it? Do you believe God owes you something? That He owes you a good life? That He owes you trouble free? That He owes you pain free? That He owes you sacrifice free? That He owes you just an easy road? You'll never come to Christ. Never you've got to get humble. See, from a natural viewpoint, Ruth already has two strikes against her. She's a female and she's a foreigner. And in those that culture in that day, that wasn't much to hold up as a resume. But she doesn't resent it. She accepts it. As a non-Israelite, she does not expect any special treatment. Her response to Boaz's kindness is absolute astonishment. She's very different from most people today. We expect kindness and we are astonished and resentful if we don't get our rights. But Ruth expresses her sense of unworthiness by falling on her face and bowing to the ground. Proud people don't say thanks. So the key to resurrection and experience provision from God... Is to fall on your face, bow before the Lord, confess your unworthiness, take refuge under his wings and be astonished at the grace he extends to you. And that's what we see happen. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, come, eat some bread and drip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. No, she's earned a seat at the head table. She's at the head table. She's not at the kid's table. She's at Boaz's side, dipping in his wine cup with the reapers, with his right-hand men and women. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Now she's getting access to the good part of the field. So don't leave her on the outside, bring her in. She's part of the family now. In verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. This is lavish provision. This is unbelievable provision. This is like way over the top than what anything she expected. Remember what she expected, expected was nothing, maybe some favor to glean among the outside of the fields and take something home for dinner and maybe a snack tomorrow morning. That's what she's looking for. But she meets this unbelievable kindness in this man named Boaz. Who takes personal responsibility for her, who provides for her, for who loves her, and who lavishes her with an unbelievable redemption. What do we learn from this? The path to resurrection, brothers and sisters, is found when someone who can do something about your situation loves you, really cares for you, and breaks through for you. That's where resurrection begins. Someone enters our world by looking, having compassion, and taking action and changing our destiny. Can you not see a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ in the example of Boaz? Jesus is our greater Boaz. Just as Boaz came to his field To speak with and care for Ruth. So our great Boaz the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. His earth. His field. To give us gracious favor and take us under his proverbial wing. He provides everything we need for our salvation and more. Where we have failed to live the righteous life that God demanded of us. He lived a perfect life for us. And where we deserve death, wrath, and judgment, and hell for our sin, Jesus came and took our curse by dying in our place for our sin on the cross. John Piper says, God is not an employer looking for employees. He is an eagle looking for people who will take refuge under his wings. He's looking for people who will leave father and mother and homeland or anything else that may hold us back from a life of love under the wings of Jesus, end quote. Isn't that amazing? This is what our Lord Jesus does for us. The Lord Jesus knows our situation. He knows what brought us to the point of despair. Just like Boaz knew about Ruth's story, Lord Jesus knows all about our story. He knows all about our story. You try to come to Jesus and you say, "Jesus, oh if I could tell you what I done, what I've done." He's like, "I know what you've done. I know everything you've done. I know everything you've done." And let me tell you how much that disqualifies you from my love. Zero. In fact, it makes you a candidate for my resurrection and my redemption. And so what we see here is a portrait of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us in our redemption and pray that you would know him as that maybe you think of jesus as a strict taskmaster you know he's the one who's going to deprive me of life and call me a slave and make me do his will and all that stuff you got a bad bad idea of what the slavery of jesus christ looks like abandonment to jesus yielding up lordship of your life is the pathway to freedom it's the pathway to resurrection. It's the pathway to redemption and joy as Ruth will experience and had experienced here in the redemption and resurrection that Boaz offered to her. So where does that lead? Third point. We've seen desperation, then provision. What's left? Celebration. That's what's left. When you're despairing and broken and struggling and God provides for you, you celebrate. That's what you do. The psalmist said, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, toast God. Amen. Here's to God for what he has done. That's what we do. So let's see the celebration that just begins in seed form here, but will break out full blown by the end of the book. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Just so you know, it's about 30 to 50 pounds. That's well enough to last her two weeks. She's set up. And she's obviously into CrossFit. Look at verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Ruth's in total beast mode right now. I mean, she's beasting that back into the city. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest, which means I'm invited back. Verse 22, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. There's a little bit of celebration going on there, isn't there? You know what? In the scriptures, we have written down for us the rich history of God's long-suffering nature with his rebellious children. And we know more fully than ever than what Ruth could ever know that the father stands with open arms and open heart scanning the horizon for the returning prodigal eager to welcome them home. He doesn't just show us grudging admission to glean his field. Rather, he invites us to his table to partake of his feast. What Naomi and Ruth most needed was not simply a redeemer in Boaz to rescue them from their earthly poverty and danger nor even a husband for Ruth, but rather they needed a heavenly redeemer to rescue them from their sin. The cost for Naomi and Ruth to have their deepest need supplied was for Jesus, the ever-living one, to taste death in their place. The cost for us to have our deepest need met, our need for salvation, was for the sinless one to be made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the great news that has been paid in full and is available to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, repent of sin and ask for it. So is your heart constantly ignited by the glorious grace and faithfulness of God? That's what this story is meant to do for us. It's meant to remind us again of the provision our God has given to us. We we don't trust in him just for our daily bread, but We find in Him the bread of life, as we saw last week. The remedy for our hard and bitter hearts, just like it was for Ruth. The remedy to our hard and bitter hearts in the midst of our distress is to ponder God's awesome grace to us. That's what melts the heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. In sickness or in health, in poverty or in riches, for better or for worse, we see that all these conditions that came into our lives were part of our Father's plan and brought us to the point where we're coming to the end of ourselves and we're throwing ourselves exclusively and completely on his mercy. And what is more, you know what? These hard providences that come into our lives that drive us to despair and that God shows us Jesus all over again, they come to us from our Redeemer's nail-scarred hands. The Jesus who commits himself to be with us in the midst of our trials knows what it is to suffer. And as a result, he's able to be our refuge in the storm and under whose wings we can come and take refuge. He is our redeemer from and through all kinds of difficulties. Now, here's how this should melt us and change us. And with this, I want to close. I want to conclude with an illustration because, brothers and sisters, when we encounter this, it's to do two things to us. First of all, seeing the desperation, seeing the provision leads us to personal celebration that we too, in our despair, in the death that our sin has brought to us, can now experience the provision and resurrection of the power of God through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. But just as grace from Boaz changed Naomi, changed Naomi's heart from bitterness to joy, so our Jesus-like love for others changes them. See, because I don't want you to miss the horizontal application here. There's certainly a vertical application of, yes, celebrate the resurrection. God is powerful. He provides for us in the midst of our desperation. We should sing. But we should also realize that's how he changes other people through us. We are his body, the church. And how is this community, how is this world going to savingly know the love of God? By the way we treat them. By the way that we manifest the way that God has treated us to them. Which means in their despair, in their brokenness, we don't load them up with requirements, demands, and labor. We provide We love them. We care about them. We extend grace to them. And in the midst of that, God begins working and changing people. We experienced it. We've seen it in our baptisms this morning. So let me conclude with this story shared by a pastor in Nashville. His name is Scott Sauls. He pastors at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. And he shares the following story about how our love, Jesus-like love, Boaz-like love, for the broken and the needy in our midst changes them and how the opposite doesn't once during a church service a well-groomed man i will call church guy tapped me on the shoulder during the singing he pointed to a man that neither of us had ever seen before a first-time visitor do you see that man church guy asked can you believe he would come into the house of God with those dirty jeans and that ratty t-shirt and drinking coffee like that and when he passed me in the hallway you know what he smelled like nicotine pastor what are you going to do about that man he's a distraction to my worship end quote all heaven started to weep James 2 1 to 9 my brothers show no partiality If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? I might add, like Ruth. Scott, Scott continues, a distraction to worship this shabbily dressed, coffee-drinking, nicotine-stained man may very well have been an ambassador of Jesus in our midst. Matthew twenty five forty. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Thankfully, after the service, another church member got to our visitor before church guy could. The church member himself, a recovering alcoholic, warmly welcomed the visitor, got his name, and asked him about his story. The visitor's name was George. He was recovering from a heroin addiction and felt like being a part of a church could help him with that. What do you call a nicotine addiction for a man who is recovering from heroin? You call it victory. You call it progress. You call it an upgrade. That same Sunday, a woman named Janet, also a first time visitor, dropped her two boys off in the nursery. After the service, While she was waiting in the nursery line to retrieve her boys, one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and said that there had been some issues. Pause right here. This is the way our nursery workers are, and I thank God for you. I see it. So I'm not using this as a, I'm I'm using this as an attaboy. Keep, Keep doing what you're doing. Let's continue with the story. Both of her boys had picked fights with the other children. Also, one of her boys had broken several of the toys that belonged to the church. In front of a room filled with other children and their parents, Janet scolded her boys and then screamed a four-letter S-word in a bellowing voice in the hallway. Deeply ashamed and feeling like a failure, Janet got her boys and skulked out of the building. No doubt we were never going to see her again. The nursery worker called the church office that Monday And asked if I could check the visitor notebook to see if Janet had left her contact information. She had. I gave the nursery worker Janet's address. And unbeknownst to me, she sent Janet a note. The note read something like this. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up from nursery. Let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. I'm really drawn to honesty, and you're clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends. Love the nursery worker. The nursery worker and Janet did, in fact, become friends. Janet came back the next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that. And eventually, Janet became the nursery director for the church. There's another significant detail about Janet's story. She's also George's wife. And when she first came to us, she too was recovering from a heroin addiction. It says about a year after I first met George and Janet at church, they called me and asked for a meeting at Starbucks. At the meeting, George looked at me across the table nervously and said, Pastor, our church means so much to us. The love we've received from this community has been such an important part of our recovery, and we want to do something to say thank you. I come from a very wealthy family, and Janet and I just received a large inheritance. We'd like to give some of that to the church. George handed me a check. It was made out to the church in the amount of $50. As far as I'm concerned, that $50 is the most significant gift ever given to any church anywhere. A full tithe? I doubt it. Technically correct according to biblical guidelines for giving, not even close. But the trajectory of George's and Janet's hearts in that moment was monumental. It was a sign of the kingdom that starts small but that grows into something mighty over time. I can't help but wonder if in that moment George and Janet were closer to the kingdom of God than the church guy who had attended church and given a full tithe all his life had ever been. Matthew 21:31. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I assure you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to marinate in and meditate on the love that you have for the despairing. And those who find themselves in life's crosshairs. And we pray that even some among us this morning... Who are there right now would in their hearts call out and cry, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that someone in our gathering this morning might call upon the name of the Lord, recognize in you all the love, all the forgiveness, all the grace that they need, and would forsake sin and cling only to Jesus Christ. And that those of us who know him and that have experienced this grace would extend it to others in the way that we care and love that we wouldn't be instruments of judging, that we wouldn't be instruments of condemnation, but that we'd be instruments of compassion and love, just as we have received such compassion and love from you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.